Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I was reading a New York Times piece uh, a couple weeks ago, and I read, it was talking about how uh, misinformation particularly spreads through smaller local news websites. So I'm going to read you this little paragraph. um, And it was talking about just how there's something like 1,700 local television stations in the United States, 3,300 radio stations, 1,300 daily papers, 5,800 weekly newspapers uh, all over the United States. And it says, Joe Liquido, an assistant uh, journalism professor who studies disinformation at the University of Texas at Austin, said local media is often a starting point that creates a trading up the chain effect. The article goes on, it starts when a rumor is covered or published in local media, she said, where it can then gain a sheen of credibility. Then, quote, when you pitch it to a Fox News or a larger news platform, you can say that this other outlet covered it, so it must be real. Well, this caught me off guard uh, because not only is this jived with what I've seen over the course of the pandemic, but as far as I understood, I coined the phrase, uh, trading up the chain. It's in the first chapter of my first book, Trust Me, I'm Lying. It was me watching how rumors or gossip or things that started on blogs would get sort of laundered through a local news site or social media and then get picked up by increasingly large 
uh, websites until it was a breaking story on CNN or Fox News or or NBC News or, or whatever. This is something I've been wanting to talk to you guys about because um, as the Daily Stoic platform has grown, um, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. This was a small group originally. It was small nerdy group of people who were really interested in ancient philosophy. But as the books have gotten bigger and bigger and sold now millions of copies, not everyone is coming to it from the same place. Uh, not everyone is familiar with all the assumptions or the teachings of Stoicism. And certainly, um, they're not all going to be dealing with the same deck of cards as far as media literacy goes. Um, so it's been, I don't want to say distressing, but it's been strange and disappointing to watch some of the vehement reactions to pretty basic historical stuff that we have talked about on Daily Stoic, particularly this Marcus Aurelius quote I love that Marcus wrote during the Antonine Plague. And we've talked about our sort of Stoic obligations to each other. We've talked about just sort of basic human decency. And also, I mean, I, I care about you guys. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And, and, and so I've tried to sort of use my platform to talk about some, some basic safety protocol uh, things. Um, and it, it's been strange to watch some of the insane reactions that these things have garnered. And if you, you don't have to take my word for it, just go, go look at some of the uh, Instagram comments or the YouTube comments on stuff that we've done and, and wrap your mind around that this is what you're seeing that wasn't deleted or banned uh, or reported, right? This is like the stuff that passed muster or that just frankly wore down the people on my team to the point where they're like, I got to move on and focus on things that actually matter. Um, so clearly there's a certain percentage of people who listen to this, who have come into my work and are, as Marcus would say, infected in one way or another or, or are vulnerable to misinformation. And so in today's episode, I wanted to talk to uh, Professor Lakito and talk about how information spreads, talk about how we can protect ourselves against it, talk about how we can notice uh, when it's happening, and talk about what our ethical obligations are as individuals and as members of society to do something about it. I thought this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed having it. it took me back all the way to my first book, uh, which is crazy to me that I wrote in 2011, uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying, now almost 10 years old. You can pick up a, a copy at my bookstore, The Painted Porch, or at thepaintedporch.com, uh, or anywhere books are sold. There's an audiobook version as well. Professor Likito uh, studies cross-platform media language in the context of global politics. She especially focuses on interactions between news and social media, and she studies language processing and does mass quantitative language analysis to study how ideas or concepts or words spread through these platforms. She studies political mis- and disinformation. There's a big difference as we talk about, and she's uh, been published everywhere from the Columbia Journalism Review and appeared on CNN. She was also cited in Robert Mueller's 2018 report on the interference in the 2016 election. She studies live tweeting, economic news coverage, public diplomacy, and coverage of U.S. foreign policy she received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2020, where she also has PhD minors in English, linguistics, and political science. She knows her stuff, and she is a new Austin resident, so it was wonderful to talk to her. I think you're really going to like this interview, and uh, I'll leave you to it. 
So I, I came across you, I was reading a piece in the New York Times, and, and I'm going to riff on it at the, the intro of the episode so people will have some context. But um, you were talking about, you, you mentioned about how information is traded up the chain, yeah. which uh, I was so excited to see because as far as I know, I made up that phrase. Yes, um, in, in my, my understanding <laughs> is that you did coin that phrase. And, and so I was like, wow, this, and it's, I wrote that book so long ago. It's not one I think about all the time, although in other aspects, unfortunately, I do have to think about mm-hmm. it all the time. But it, it, it was like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I was talking about. And to see someone like you studying it from a sort of a scholarly perspective and explaining how it's happening in real time, it was, it was both encouraging and alarming to me at the same time. But why don't we start with how you, your understanding of that concept and how you've seen it uh, in your work. Yeah, absolutely. So I, it's funny you mentioned that you haven't really thought about it all too hard in, in maybe more recent years because it's been on my mind probably nonstop for the past <laughs> two years or so. And I, I'm a, a researcher who uses primarily computational methods to study cross-platform media flows. So I'm Mm -hmm. really curious about how language or links or memes, all variations of human communication flow from different social media platforms, but also between social media and news. And so a lot of my work during, you know, in 2016 and 2017, were really focused on how, for example, Russian trolls ended up getting into news media. Yeah. Um, And a lot of that activity, uh, at the time, I, I realized, you know, this is this is a, an interesting link to explore. The one where, you know, news organizations are really looking through social media and trying to find, you know, interesting stories to cover or opinions of the public, that sort of thing. And I realized that this, this push and pull goes both ways, right? And this is where mm-hmm. I kind of came across your concept of trading up the chain, this idea that Um, a story can be dropped in like a social media post or a blog and then pitched repeatedly from a small news organization, um, a niche platform or a digital platform into one that's larger. Uh, And so I've been trying to follow that trend, particularly when it comes to political misinformation. But of course, you know, during the pandemic, that also includes COVID misinformation. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of alarming when you it. If you watch just a single story unfold, like if you were like there when it happened, I think I think part of uh, a good portion of our sort of dysfunction about media, I think, has to do with just how how rarely people actually sort of encounter it happening. Oh, yeah. If you ever like you happen to be the subject of a big news story or you you witness an event that becomes a media story or in your case, you're studying it. It's quite alarming at just sort of how. um quickly, you know, like the sort of the thing can go from this one place or this somewhat spurious or or speculative place Mm -hmm. to like, all of a sudden, like heads of state are reacting to it as if it's the most established, you know, well sussed out thing in the world. Absolutely. And I think the, the speed is really the tricky part. In the past, these sort of processes might have taken a little bit longer or you would have need to have more power to have, you know, the ear of a journalist or someone who can cover it and, and expand that to their audience. But now it's very easy through social media. And so that process is just so quickly and easily exploited. And um, in, in my own research, when, when I study platforms like Telegram and Parler, for example, yeah. where the alt-right and sometimes white nationalists and, and QAnoners and other conspiratorial individuals 
where they're active, um, you can really see that uh, that organization in real time, which was really shocking. There was one example I remember of a, a Telegram channel that was discussing a piece of fake news that they were hoping to promote on Twitter. And the piece ended up going quite viral on Twitter. I'm trying to remember what the what it was about. It was a little far back. It was like 20, sometime 2018 and 2019. Um, and the people on Telegram were actually discussing how to promote that activity on Twitter. So they would post the tweet and encourage other folks on Telegram to retweet it um, and would also give updates anytime, for example, a prominent Twitter user or a verified Twitter user would retweet it or when a news media organization would cover it. It's, it's, it's weird because when I was writing the book, I was trying to sort of say like, look, here's how this happens. Mm -hmm. uh, this is probably not good. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it could be used like, Hey, if you have a charity, you know, here's oh, yeah. how you could get publicity for it. Or here, if you have some, you know, cause you're trying to get sure. publicity for it, here's how this works. Um, and then I think what the alarming thing has been, there's all, I'm curious, maybe you disagree, mm -hmm. but it really feels like these groups, the sort of, uh, whether you're talking about Russian trolls or sort of um, uh, political disruptors, it's almost as if they're more media fluent in how these things work than not just the the public, but it seems like even the the, the outlets that, that, uh, that they end up exploiting seem to be relatively ignorant of this process. And that's why it keeps happening. Yes, I think... One of the things that I get worried about is when news outlets don't have a lot of verification practices, especially for social media content. And one of the things that is scary to me is, you know, when folks pitch things to a news organization or when a news organization sees something on social media, they don't necessarily check the source of it or um, reach out to the person who's actually posting it to make sure, you know, is that a genuine human being? Is that, you know, content that they genuinely believe in, so on and so forth. And so um, I don't know. My hope is that news organizations change that over time. But I, I acknowledge that that's a hard process to try to verify every individual on social media. Well, I, I saw this happen somewhat recently. This is a more positive example, mm -hmm. but I think it, the, the illustration is what should alarm people is. So uh, I live out here in Bastrop and I donated some money to get this Confederate statue moved. And I just took a picture of it and I posted like what I'd done on Instagram. And then someone had posted that on the Austin subreddit. Oh, and then literally within like 20 minutes, I got uh, tweets from uh, uh, like DMs on Twitter right. from local reporters who wanted to interview me about it. And then the same thing happened. Uh, I have a bookstore here and this mm -hmm. woman came in and sort of had this big stink about wearing a mask. And then she sent us this really nasty letter about it. And uh, so I posted a letter also mm -hmm. on social media and again, it goes from social, like yes. my personal social media, where I could do whatever I wanted with it. I could have photoshopped it. I could have changed it. Yeah. Right. Like the donation could have been fake in the, the other case. And right. then that goes to Reddit, which again, there's no vetting. Nope. But then, then immediately you're getting inquiries from reporters who are like, who are, they're almost like Uber drivers outside of an airport, just waiting yeah. for passengers to land so they can they can grab a ride. Like I don't think right. people understand. Yeah. yeah, I don't think people understand just how much like anticipation and waiting there is to like scoop up anything sensational or provocative, and how ninety nine percent of the time this this works out. The the person is not being right. just disingenuous or misleading, but every um, so often, yes. Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of folks don't realize how much, for example, journalists really rely on Twitter 
for any of their newsmaking at this point, even if it's for factual information or for opinions, right? And so mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've noticed in talking to a lot of journalists is they, they wake up with Twitter, they go to bed with Twitter, and they're constantly DMing and reaching out to people. And yes. even in the examples that you provided, you know, the content you're sharing is hopping across so many social media platforms, sometimes in the form of links, but very often in the form of images, which are much easier to manipulate and much harder to verify. Right. Yes. And, and it feels like, okay, so it went social, like it went from Instagram mm -hmm. to Reddit. To Reddit, to Twitter. Yeah, that that feels like it's being vetted, but these are these are four platforms with zero vetting, right? Like, oh, so, yeah. So we think that as it goes up the chain, it's being vetted, but it's like it, actually no one is vetting because they're just assuming no, the person and, underneath them did it. Exactly, and one of the scariest things is that you know instead of it being vetted, the the process for whether something is worth reporting on ends up becoming much more about whether it's popular, right? And yes, so have sure. a lot of people you know, liked it on Instagram or upvoted it on Reddit or retweeted it on Twitter, that has become the indicator of whether something is newsworthy or worth covering because it's, you know, provocative or interesting or gets a lot of reactions from folks. Um, and so unfortunately, what we see is that that vetting process has now been replaced with a virality process, essentially. So, so when you... Just talk to us a little bit about like sort of how you see stuff trading up the chain. Like what, what is it certain kinds of information? Is it certain people who are like, like as, yeah. as you study this phenomenon, what, what are you, what are you seeing COVID election or, you know, sort of any types of news? How, how does this yeah. typically happen? Well, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned in, in most cases, a lot of this information isn't necessarily bad. Like, you know, good information can also be traded up the chain. But I sure. obviously specialize in misinformation, disinformation, because I'm worried when that kind of information is traded up the chain. And if this year has shown us anything, it's that, you know, malicious information or polarizing information can spread rather quickly. And there's been research evidence showing that false information, especially when it's emotionally laden, especially when it's rather dramatic or polarizing, that tends to spread much faster than factually accurate information. Um, and so if, when you think about that sort of pattern in relation to trading up the chain, it makes a lot of sense, tragically, that misinformation, in, in particular about COVID, but also about the election, ends up being very easily traded up the chain. Uh, from my research, I found that a lot of times this stuff will start on smaller platforms or smaller groups and communities. So, for example, one particular subreddit or a Telegram channel or on Parler, and then they will try to move it towards a larger social media platform, typically a bigger subreddit, um, Twitter, obviously, because there are a lot of journalists on Twitter and Facebook. And this is where it will then get picked up by journalists, sometimes by smaller journalists who then, you know, give it attention for larger newsrooms, but sometimes it just jumps straight up to, you know, a Fox News, CNN, New York Times type platform. Yeah, I think when I was writing this, and it's crazy to me that, I, I mean, I was I was writing, trust me, I'm lying, in 2011. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I was observing had happened, you know, 2007, 2008, yeah. 2009. Um, but it is remarkable just what a stable link in that chain mm -hmm. sort of local news seems to be or or sort of regional news because i think is it is it that mm -hmm. the is it that there's hundreds of years of sort of equity in those brands uh, why why is it that you know people care about you know the local nbc station or the local 
this or that. Why do they seem to be specifically such a conduit for the, the kind of information that then escalates to national news or it goes viral yeah. on social media? Yeah, I think it's two trends. So first, people generally trust local news media more than they trust national news media, even if they are consuming more national news media. So there is this equity that comes in from being a local newsroom and um, reporting on stories locally. But at the same time, these local newsrooms are the ones that suffer the most when it comes to, you know, newsroom cuts and funding cuts. And so a lot of these newsrooms have really struggled in finding the resources to actually verify a lot of this information um, and then are kind of encouraged, if not just straight out told to, you know, share a story coming from the mother organization, right? The, um, the larger corporation. So for example, when I talk to a lot of folks, they don't realize that most of their local newspapers are now owned by Gannett, for example. Um, they think that it's still part of their you know, local newsroom and it's the same as it's always been because it's, the name has been around for 50 years or so. But 10 years right. ago, it was picked up by Gannett. And as a result, a lot of the stories that you'll see in a Gannett type newspaper are the same newspapers that are the same news stories that you see in USA Today and in other Gannett newspapers. So if you have someone share a piece of misinformation and that tweet gets embedded into a USA Today story, it might end up on hundreds of local newspaper websites, right? But folks don't necessarily realize it's because it's all linked through Gannett. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. And, and I think the other thing people don't necessarily realize, and I don't mean to disparage these local reporters, but these are not usually uh, seasoned journalists with uh, many decades oh, sure. of experience mm-hmm. the way that they once were. 
Um, usually, the, like it's almost as if media has its own chain where you're sort of like if you you, you would start at you know uh, a local broadcaster oh, in yeah. Des Moines, but you're very quickly trying to get up to the national level. So so yes. these people are kind of um, they're either early in their career or they are trying to go places in their career, and that's a that's a, a real factor in uh, influencing what and how they cover what they cover. Yes, there a lot of them tend to be inexperienced or the ones that are experienced who have been doing it for a lot of a long time, you know, they are more expensive to pay. And so they're the ones who end up getting cut the fastest. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I've noticed in the local newsroom space is that a lot of um, media corporations are doing this sort of consolidation where not only are they consolidating all the newspapers under one newspaper, but they'll, they'll also give that newspaper kind of a niche. So you have to focus on sports and this other space has to focus on, you know, political reporting. And so what you see is a, a noticeable decrease in the number of people who are covering one thing, right? They sure. end up just assigning it to one person. Um, and so you get this kind of siloing um, that results in less verification and it results in fewer people actually covering the story. And um, what ends up looking like local news is actually much more like regional or state level news. Yeah. And, and uh, a lot of these outlets don't like, I've never gone to KXAN.com, which would be mm -hmm. a local, you know, uh, uh, Austin news site, yep. right? Like I don't, pull that up to read the news, but I do read a lot of their reporting um, mm -hmm. because it gets passed to me, right? Like I'll see it on Reddit or friends yes. will be texting it around. So the other sort of factor that I think is operating on the news that people don't necessarily think about is, and you mentioned how sort of emotionally laden news tends to spread right. best, that these, the stories are dependent on are they passed from person to person? So, oh, you know, absolutely. insert complicated concept does not yeah. spread well. You know, insert sad concept doesn't usually, like it tends to be uh, aggravating, frustrating, disappointing, yes. outrageous, tragic. You know, it, it's the uh, high the valence bait. stuff. Totally. Yeah. I, I like the way that you put it, high valence stuff. And it's things that are really simple to explain and very emotionally charged. And, with COVID, I think that's that's one area where you see a lot of misinformation spreading for those exact two reasons. Because obviously, you know, COVID and the pandemic is a complicated thing, both medically, but also in terms of like, how do we as a society deal with it economically, socially, et cetera. And if someone can provide a simple answer, like, you know, before the vaccine, when everyone was talking about hydroxychloroquine and all of the solutions, it's really easy for that stuff to spread on social media where it is unvetted and then unintentionally or intentionally gets picked up by a news organization, right? And so the news organization not only takes cues from what's popular and what's popular in discussion on these platforms, but then they turn it around and when they produce a news story about it, their hope is that they can kind of jump on that bandwagon and get more traction for their news stories because they're talking about something that is popular, even if it is unverified. Well, and 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 we've we've gotten to a place where we're sort of so polarized as a society, mm -hmm. and, and there, there's always certain interest groups that want either certain things to be true because they believe it, because they're trying to advance some agenda, because they're crazy, whatever it is. So I think this is also where the trading up the chain thing happens. Where like, okay, let's say there's a certain percent of the population that's been that believes uh, this should be a thing, or they believe this right. viewpoint. Well, they only have to get 
like let's say there's a thousand local news websites in the United States. Mm-hmm. They just have to get one to pick it up, right? And oh, then yeah. and then it's relevant to not just the people in Des Moines, Iowa or right. Birmingham, Alabama, but then it, it's like that it was picked up by a local news outlet confirms what they already believed, right? And then it gives right. them something they can then pass to other people to propagate this view. So yes. in the same way that a marketer goes, okay, I want people to talk about this movie or talk about this mm-hmm. product that I have. They're like, I just need one outlet to cover it. Uh, there was a great um, publicist named Michael Citrick, and he was he was saying that every mm-hmm. campaign, you need a lead steer, right? Like one steer oh, starts Oh yeah, that's a good stampede. way to frame it. And so it's like you basically have this vested interest or this energy that just needs one reporter under however much pressure to write one story for one local news outlet. And then it's off to the races because now, you know, all over the world, the people who are interested in that thing can be sharing it and it drives it to the top of the leaderboard. And then they're posting on. So it becomes this whole thing. Yes. And I think that's true for a lot of media communication, right? So for example, you saw, you found me through a New York Times article and then you reached out for me to come to this podcast. Yes. And there's a lot of examples of that, of any time I end up on in the news or if I write something for, you know, Wired or Vox or, or something, because other news organizations or other folks who are in the media are paying attention to that and just, you know, seeing what's up and they might have seen it on Twitter or on Reddit or something. And this is how I end up making a lot of contacts with other folks in the media organization. But it's through very similar processes. Yes. Uh, I wanted to go back to this comment you had earlier about how political our you know, media environment has become, our social environment has become. And I think that that polarization is not just really important for thinking about what information flows where, but it's really important to think about because they are so... Um, a lot of the the things that get shared are polarizing towards the other person, right? Okay. And so, uh, for example, I think disinformation actors exploit this kind of polarization all the time by showing by by producing content, for example, that makes the other political group look bad. Yes. So to give you an example, there was a a Russian troll that I was following in 2016 named Ten GOP, which is short for Tennessee GOP. They were impersonating. Yep. Yep. They were Russian. They were pretending to be a Tennessee GOP account. Um, And they had found this picture. There was a a person in Ohio. His name is um, Chris McNeil. He's kind of like a shock jock. He focuses mostly on sports. And one of the things he really likes to do is he pretends to take pictures of sports games and then he tells other people that they are actually political campaigns. And he does this a fair number of times. So in in a later interview, he made this comment of like, I just put it out there and my followers know I do this all the time. But in this very specific instance, he shared this this picture of a Cleveland Cavaliers celebration game. And he said that it was a rally for Donald Trump in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) And 10GOP picks up this image and shares it in his own tweet saying, you know, this is a picture of the Phoenix rally, but everyone said that, you know, Trump wasn't popular, but here's this empirical image proof. And so this picture, this tweet goes viral. He gets about 100,000 likes within the first couple of days. It gets retweeted by Kellyanne Conway and Donald Trump Jr. It gets picked up by some conservative media platforms as an example of, pictures and proof that the Phoenix rally was really big. But then, of course, this 
you know, the, the information comes out that this picture is actually of the Cleveland Cavaliers and not of the Phoenix rally. And it goes through the entire media cycle again, where after it's been reported on, liberal news organizations realize that it's a fake picture and they start tweeting about how conservatives got duped by this picture. Then you see stories coming out from Washington Post or Huffington Post talking about how conservatives were duped by this picture of, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And this whole process, no one has realized that it's actually a Russian troll that's been sharing this information. Yeah, I think people sometimes, um, they don't realize that the aim of the person, it's like the secondary aim of the person might have been to advance a certain political agenda. But the primary aim of the person was just to get attention, period. And and to upset people, period. And so, in fact, getting it wrong is a mistake. But then debunking it the second time is a mistake because now it's actually giving the person more twice yes. than what they thought they could have gotten and certainly twice more than they, they ever deserved. Right. And, you know, the, as a result of all of this coverage, 10 GOP jumped in followers at, at such a high amount because all of this happened so quickly, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the tweet coming out, going viral, getting debunked, being covered for being debunked is happening in the span of a week. And 10 GOP's account name is coming up so frequently that they ended up getting a ton of followers after that whole incident. And so when I think about, you know, how easy is this kind of trading up the chain process? How, how easy can it be used? It's very, very exploitable now. Yes. And I would say on top of it, the, the other thing that we talk about less is also it's like every one of those outlets incidentally mm-hmm. exposed how dependent they were on oh, this yeah. kind of information. And then it makes it easier for that person or other people to do it again. Um, yes. and, and so now, yeah, let's say some other disinformation person is trying to get something out of the world. They're looking at what accounts were pivotal in kicking that off. And that's who they're targeting yes. um, with the, the next salacious yes, photo. Exactly. Or that's who they're, you know, at mentioning or who they're now pitching yes. to. And I, I still think pitching is still an important process. Like I, I think some of this information does come through through social media but I think pitching is still something that happens, especially when you're trying to direct message a journalist. Mm-hmm. So I think it's less so, you know, in 2011 or 2012, it was probably more popular to use emails versus now it's a lot of at mentioning individual journalists or DMing them or trying to contact them through a social media. You or know, they're, yeah, they're anonymous tip lines or their signal channel. Yeah. Uh, they, they want, you know, they want to hear what's bubbling up and then they act as if they discovered it. And right. they never go like, oh, actually, you know, I never stopped to ask, why did this magically appear from three different sources within 10 minutes of each other in my DMs? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's really a shame when you think about the, like, what it does in terms of the quality of information in the media ecology, right? And sometimes I wonder if these newsrooms realize in producing so much content that's not verified, you're just making the whole ecosystem so much worse. It's a it's a collective action problem for Absolutely. sure. There's there's uh you know there's that Upton Sinclair line about how it's very difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on them not yeah. understanding it. I feel like I talk about this a little bit in Trust Me I'm mm-hmm. Lying, where it's like you would never you would never tolerate a journalist owning stock in a company they're reporting about, yeah. right? But what happens in this sort of clickbait universe or the universe where they are largely judged based on the numbers they put up right. is that 
the stock they own is in their own stories, right? Yeah. And so they don't stop and go, yeah, why Why is this magic? Like, why would someone uh, gift me this scoop? Uh, you yeah. know, sources are inherently self-interested, but you're, you're sort of deliberately blind to that self-interest because it aligns with your self-interest. Self-interest, yes. It, it aligns with your interest in getting attention for stories because that's what you depend on now as a journalist, right? And one of the things, one one thing I will say is slightly different now um, compared to maybe about 10 years ago is to me the role of verified accounts and politicians in particular um, in making something look especially quality, like look as if it's quality information when in fact it's factually incorrect. And so one of the things that journalists look out for in addition to does it have a lot of attention? The other thing they pay attention to is who is actually paying attention, right? And so if I tweet something and a well-known Democrat or Republican retweets it, obviously my own tweet's going to get much more attention, but now it has the potential for New York Times or CNN or Fox News to see it because it's been retweeted by a prominent politician and given this kind of verification check, regardless of whether it's accurate or not. And I think that's especially troubling when I look at, you know, election fraud discourse or COVID discourse, especially from Republican politicians, because some of them have a tendency to share that information. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That's code Daily Stoic. Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. 
Well, and and I think increasingly, and you saw this with with Matt. I think what is it, Madison Madison Cawthorn, the the Republican senator from North Carolina, oh, yeah. South Carolina, mm-hmm. wherever. But he was saying, I don't see myself as a legislator. I don't have a legislative staff. I have a comms staff, and right. so that the these. The, the the line between individual and media outlet is also blurred, so blurred with with even fewer of the senses of obligation or ethics or yes. you know sort of media they are they are by definition wholly partisan yeah. um because they belong to a political party and so they are seeing they are acting like they are performing the social function of a media outlet with none of the constraints or um uh, obligations that yes. come with that, perhaps even to a larger audience than most media outlets. Oh, absolutely. And then you think about people who are media personalities like Tucker Carlson, who claims he's not a news organization, but puts out information as, as having this semblance of news, right? And so the the line between who is and isn't a quote unquote media person has become really blurred. And in a lot of situations, they they can spread misinformation. So there's two two things I wanted to talk to you about. I'm not sure which one we should start with. Let's start with okay. um, you. You were mentioning sort of bad misinformation actors or disinformation actors, yeah. and they certainly exist. And we saw with the Russian interference, and we've seen it. And clearly, like if you're China, the cost mm-hmm. of uh, actually engaging in sort of real sabotage or overt violence is very high. But you can. It's so cheap to hire yeah, trolls. It's exactly. It's so cheap to hire trolls. And, and so, so it, it's unquestionable to me that that is go, that is going on. And I've seen some of it going on. And I, you know, in my marketing days, people would approach mm-hmm. me to try to participate in said thing. So I know that mm-hmm. that happens. But it strikes me uh, much more in the last several years. I don't want to diminish that threat because it's certainly real. Sure. But it does seem like we are. We're almost fighting the last war where we're just starting to come around to that existing. And and now we're at the, I guess what I'm saying is it seems like a lot of the people spreading, let's say, COVID misinformation are not Russian trolls. They're just no, people who have been people. mentally infected with uh, screwed up beliefs or like you're, you're dealing with people who are genuinely sincere about the information they're spreading uh, and and they're just wrong. Yeah. And so this is a key distinction between disinformation and misinformation, right? So mm-hmm. disinformation is content that is intentionally shared that is knowingly false. So if I shared something on Twitter and I knew that it was false, that would be disinformation. But misinformation typically describes information you share that is false, but you don't know that it's false. So that could be me sharing some piece of COVID misinformation that I you know, believe is true, but is actually factually incorrect. And I think what we're seeing now is this transition from disinformation really being a concern in 2016 to now the the concern is really more related to misinformation and people really believing this content. And for me, that's a little bit scarier even because when you really, really believe something, it's hard to refute. And in a lot of situations, when you see people who are trying to combat COVID misinformation, for example, those folks will double down. And instead of, you know, corrective information actually being helpful, it causes the individual who believes in the misinformation to dig their feet in and and really, you know, refute the correcting information. Yeah, that's what I saw when I was doing Trust Me Online. It's like, sometimes it's like, okay, very clearly this was a marketing message that bubbled yeah. up, that someone did this or, or a political message. But then oftentimes, like, let's say with celebrity gossip, 
it, or, or some rumor, you mm-hmm. like, you trace it back and back and back and you go like, oh, this is from a typo or this yeah. is just from a, from a misinterpretation of a thing where somebody got the date wrong on a photo or what. And, oh, and yeah. you're like, oh, wow. The mach-, you know, it's like the tail is wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, not like in the movie, there's a guy doing it, but like, it, it's just like, no, it's, it's oper- the machine is operating under its own power and it takes only the slightest, you know, sort of, uh, thought or post or, or whatever from one person to, to then be all over the place. Oh, uh, yeah. And I don't know what you do about that. I mean, I think the way that a lot of, uh, a lot of social media companies have attempted to address this is by really focusing on the content and not necessarily on the content producer, which kind of troubles me because it, it feels like if you're not going to remove the person who's sharing all this misinformation, if you're just going to remove it post by post, then you're still make, like that person is plenty able to keep resharing that information. Right. And yeah. I don't, it, it's unfortunate because I feel like this is something that, you know, social media companies can address this to some extent, but on some level, even if they, for example, get deplatformed or something, they get removed from a social media platform, they could just as easily go to a different social media account, right? And right. so in, in I, some of the QAnon stuff that I study, um, there was one interview a guy did where he mentioned that he had made upwards of 26 different Facebook accounts. Every time his account gets deleted, he makes a new one, shares the same type of COVID misinformation, gets removed, starts a new account and does it all over again. And so, you know, with practices like that, I think it's really, really hard to figure out a way to actually get rid of this sort of misinformation. And and like, what is going on with that person? Like, is that person like, hey, I'm trying to destabilize society. I want people to die of a pandemic. Or is it more likely that that person just like, is severely convinced oh, that they're doing it. the right thing. Yeah. He he the the way in which I've seen it framed in QAnon is that it's framed as a fight for good versus evil where the person who is sharing this misinformation they really believe that misinformation and they believe that it is their obligation as an American and as a citizen to put that information out there even though big brother or you know the cabal that they believe in will stop them from doing it. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a, there's a Marcus Aurelius quote that I love, which he actually said during the Antonine plague. Um, so, so it's funny and sort of how history yeah. works out, but he said, you know, um, he says, there's the type of plague that destroys your life and it, it kills you. And then he says, mm-hmm. and then there's the pestilence that destroys your character. Right. Oh, wow. And, and what a it's a great quote. I know. I know. And <laughs> and it, it makes me wonder if there were people like that back then. Um, these people who like because every once in a while I'll post something um, mm. I'll, I'll, given that I know what I'm talking about, talk about misinformation, let's say, or right. I'll talk about our, our responsibility and obligation to each other. Um, totally. And and you'll watch people respond and they're so vehement and so intense and so yes. sort of te- untethered from reality, I sort of, my, my reaction has always been like, oh, this, like the person who, who mailed in that letter that mm-hmm. I was talking about, it's like, oh, this person has been infected with something else, yes. not COVID, but right. they've been infected with something that has taken, it's, it's almost turned a parasite uh, that, that, that has turned them into a host organism for yes. like, just putting out, like shedding whatever they were infected out into the world through as many means as possible. Yes. And that's a really great way of framing it because I do it. 
a lot of people kind of frame it in relation to cults, for example, and sort of brainwashing. But I think that doesn't necessarily capture the way in which this kind of misinformation spreads, right? Where you you get this misinformation parasite and it compels you, right? It It frames the world in a way that you become this digital soldier that has to provide this information, this critical information out there. And so even in a lot of these movements, they very much frame it as you're doing the right thing. And it, it really encourages you, encourages you to engage in that kind of shedding process. Um, and I was thinking a little bit about, you know, you were, you were talking about, you know, the importance of social ties and, and relationships. And I think that's one of the most tragic consequences I've seen of this sort of misinformation parasite is the severing of social ties between individuals. And there, there are a lot of situations, I think, of people who have cut ties with family and friends, especially when, when, we, talk, we, sorry, uh, when we talk about the vaccine and we talk about who has and hasn't gotten the vaccine. Yeah. It's, um, do you know about toxoplasmosis, the thing that cats carry? No, I do not. So, so there's a re- like pregnant women, for instance, are you're supposed to be careful about like having a cat that that goes to the bathroom in your house because they carry this this um, this uh, virus or whatever that that is okay. particularly dangerous to to pregnant women. But the way the uh, as I understand the way the virus works is cats carry this parasite that mm-hmm. that um, or I don't know if it's a virus or a parasite, but anyways, cats carry it. They give it to mice, and it makes mice not scared of cats. So you could see it as it's like a biological weapon, like cats sure. shed this thing and then mice get it and then mice act recklessly and stupidly around, around cats and then cats kill them. Right. Absolutely. And it, 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 there's something like that in these things where, you know, they're not having a nor like I have political opinions. I have things, I even have like crazy, not crazy. I have things that I'm suspicious of or skeptical sure. of, like we all do, but it doesn't consume my life in the way that. I would then, you know, troll, uh, like hound someone on social media or post all, like, or find myself storming the Capitol, oh, right? So yeah. there, there's something that it, in, it infects and consumes the person to the degree where they're almost, I would argue, more dangerous than a paid Russian operative. Oh, yeah, because they probably doesn't it. really care. <laughs> yeah. Wait, oh, absolutely. I think it's so different when you really, in your heart and your soul, you really believe it, right? Because it, it means as a result of that, you might end up breaking social ties with people or engaging in violence, January 6th being a really excellent example. Um, but there was another incident in Texas of someone recently like pulling a, ma- a face mask off of a, a teacher. A teacher, yeah. Yes. And, you know, just like how absolutely reckless that is from just like a social standpoint, even, you know, if you don't believe in mask mandates and stuff like that, it's incredibly rude behavior. Yeah, you're um, like a rabid dog. Like if I yeah. like, let's say I I believed uh, X, Y or Z religious garment was mm-hmm. uh, sinful. I'm like, that's your problem, right? Like right. I'm not going around right, ripping exactly. them off people unless I've been infected or like, made antisocial to some degree by whatever is flowing through my head. Yeah. And I think it is, you know, it, it becomes especially tragic when we think about those kind of social relationships, family and friends who no longer talk because of the vaccine. So for example, I I'm engaged. Um, I, and for my wedding next year, I expect everyone who can be vaccinated to be vaccinated. Of course. However, my mother-in-law is one of those vaccine-skeptical people. And that has caused some just natural tension when we talk about, you know, wedding planning and that sort of thing, because I really want her to get the vaccine. And 
she's right now she's more on the skeptical side of side of things and not the conspiratorial side of things thankfully sure. like she doesn't believe in the microchip stuff she's just more skeptical of its effectiveness which i think you know those sort of folks are easier to persuade those who are vaccine skeptical versus people who are just straight up conspiratorial um but it it has caused a lot of strain in our family because she refuses to get vaccinated and uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the subreddit QAnon Casualties. Yes. So uh, I I find that particular subreddit really interesting because of just the kind of stories that emerge and the the ways in which this kind of misinformation can not just impact like our national politics or you know things that are going on politically or socially in public, but also our deeply personal private lives. Right, like just the idea that you're no longer speaking to individuals because they refuse to get vaccinated. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's an interesting question. Of a friend of mine's wife uh, mm-hmm. is like a sort of a rabid anti like COVID denier, vaccine denier, mass denier, and she posts about it on social media like all the time. Right. And like we sort of know objectively it's a fringe belief, right? So let's say uh, a thousand people see each one of these posts, you know, 900 Mm -hmm. of them or 950 of them are all like, this is insane. And like 50 are probably like, oh, you you have a good point, right? Yeah. Uh, But the weird part about it is like, nobody says anything. I don't say anything. Nobody says anything because I I think we're all, I I was curious, that was what I was going to ask you is like, what is our obligation as individuals? What's my obligation as a person? What do we with, owe to each other? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or what's my, as a content creator, like with Daily mm-hmm. Stoke, we have a million Instagram followers. So we'll post something. We, we, I posted that Marcus Aurelius quote that we were talking about yeah. earlier. And it will be, you could look at it. It's thousands of comments mm-hmm. from people who are like, this is not true. How could you say this? You know, made this quote up. Marx Aurelius would never wear a mask. He's not a cuck. You know, all, all this crazy oh, shit, basically. Yeah. What is my, like, I'm curious, like, what is our, what is our obligation? Do you let it sit? Do you have to fight each one? Do you, like, it makes me unhappy when I see it. it. Can yeah. I just ignore it? What do you feel like our obligation is as people who are also nodes in this informational ecosystem? Yeah. And that's such a great and hard question, especially when you have such a large audience like that. Right. I think just from a human human perspective, it'd be really hard for you or or a producer to respond to each and every single comment in a meaningful, effective way. Right. And so I think the trick is picking your battles, which is a lot easier said than done. Um, But for me, folks who are who are really close to me, I think are the ones that I try to persuade the most often, like, you know, my future mother-in-law. I think when it comes to a larger audience, it's much harder to respond. And I think when you know that the person is not engaging in genuine deliberative discourse, then it's not worth the effort. So if someone's calling you a cuck for, you know, posting a link or something, you're like, I'm probably not going to have healthy political conversations with you. There's not really an exchange of ideas or information in a meaningful way because you're coming into that conversation knowing that person isn't genuinely trying to talk to you they're just trying to insult you yeah um, my, my my usual policy is is ban or you can restrict accounts yeah. so they can't post on your thing anymore but um, yeah and i think that's the way to go for a lot of these especially if they're not engaging in, in genuine conversation and i think that's what's really hard about social media social media is really great for trading up the chain and for you know getting um really polarizing emotionally laden content to go viral 
but it's less good for those nuanced conversations unless you're, you know, in a private message or something with someone because it a lot of social media is so public in nature. If yeah. I have an argument with someone on Facebook, everyone sees that. And so I'm not just arguing to the person back and forth, but I'm arguing to the person knowing there's an audience that I'm trying to persuade, right? I want to make sure that it, my message or my comment gets more likes or whatever compared to the other person. Um, and I think that that naturally just alters the way in which people talk to one another because it becomes about winning and not so much be about exchanging information or persuading someone that this misinformation is incorrect. I did a piece for the New York Daily News about sort of banning uh, these different types of people and the failures of the platforms, because to me, there's kind of an analogy to like the, the bill of goods we've been sold, like in regards to recycling or your carbon footprint, where mm -hmm. like we as individuals go like, am I reusing this bottle? Am I recycling? As, as if that, or, you know, we're like, oh, we got to stop using plastic straws, even though that's like 0.001% yeah. of the global pollution. Like, it's basically like these massive companies that are mm -hmm. raping the earth have, yeah. have somehow managed to flip the obligation. So it's the individual using a microscopic amount of, you know, uh, pollution material. Yeah. yeah it, they're having to think about rationing their activities and paring down what they're doing. It's almost as if it's a it's a massive distraction from what they're it's like, should you have to can like it's like, what are what's my obligation to my friend's wife when right. really Facebook, you know, what's the it, I think the question it's is, really what is Facebook's obligation. obligation to billions of people? Yes. And, you know, this is something that I think Facebook is only really thinking about in relation to their bottom line, which is incredibly tragic. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you. This is only a concern for Mike Zuckerberg because lots and lots of people have called him out on it. And honestly, I don't know if Facebook will change anything unless they start seeing a lower amount of users or, you know, really significant backlash, which is really tragic when you think about, you know, the the potential or the importance of a platform like Facebook in spreading that sort of misinformation. Well, yeah, I think these infected people are very good for business because they mm -hmm. care so much more and they post than anyone so else. much more. Right. right. They care so much more. They post so much more. They're reacting to one another's comments. Right. I think this is a really key difference when you when you join a misinformation community like that, when you are, you know, you believe that Bill Gates has implanted this microchip in the COVID vaccine and you find a community of people who believe the same things you do, it's not just that you're posting the content, it's that they're reacting to it, they're responding, they're cheering you on. And all of that looks like, you know, activity on social media and on Facebook. And it does well for Facebook in the, you know, in the short sense of, I am getting a lot of people who are really active on these platforms. But at the same time, you know, it is also spreading a ton of misinformation. My my last question for you, and this is a, a weird thing that I've gone through with the book. Um, yeah. So my my intention for writing the book was to reveal how some of these things work with the idea that they might be fixed, right? Or mm -hmm. or to bring them to people's attention. So sometimes people, when uh, I, you know, I've taken COVID very seriously, yeah. I've, I obviously support vaccines. I've tried to use my platform to talk about these ideas. Um, People will sometimes go, how is you, the person who wrote Trust Me, I'm Lying, could you possibly believe what the media is telling you about these things? Which is the question I wanted to pose to you, which is like mm -hmm. when you watch 
things get traded up the chain all over the, all over the place, like even all the way up to the New York Times or to CNN or to, to, to all sorts of media outlets, including the so-called reputable ones. It is an interesting question. How then do we trust, you know, when they say, um, you know, the election was uh, there was no fraud in the election or they say, you know, COVID is real or they say masks work. Uh, there, there is this it is a, a, a tricky problem because mm. um, we are even people who distrust the media, including myself, from my mm. experiences or for you, having seen the vulnerabilities in the system, we are still dependent on the media to get oh, our information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that's that's a not only is that a hard, important question, but it's true for a lot of aspects of our society, right? Even just yeah. thinking about the medical system, like, you know, a lot of people are unhappy with their healthcare system for a lot of reasons. And yeah. the healthcare system has not been great to everyone, particularly, you know, black and indigenous people of color and minorities. And they've gotten and yet, so many things wrong and they've lied about it when they've gotten wrong. Like that's, that's a, yeah, you can't dispute that. Yeah. And yet, you know, it makes sense to me that, that as a result of that, folks are skeptical of the vaccine. Right. And I think that ends up becoming a, a potential funnel for conspiratorial thoughts and that sort of thing. But going back to the, the question that you had, how do we balance that? I think it's not, you know, for me, it's not a matter of trusting media outright, but situating media information in relation to all of the other information in the ecosystem. So to, to use COVID as an example, I think news media, there's only so much that news media organizations can do when they're writing stories about COVID because there's only so much space that you can put into a news article, right? Even if you have hundreds of news articles. So for me, knowing that it's medical information, I try to rely on a combination of news organizations, information, and information from medical associations, for example. Um, and my hope is that if I'm triangulating information, it is an improved quality. But of course, I still do all of that with many, many grains of salt. Yeah, no, it's it's hard because that, I think that's what's so insidious about that do your own research yeah. phrase, because that is what you should be doing. Yes. Um, but uh, I don't think some people actually know what research entails. Yeah. And I think what's really tricky about that, especially for, for anyone, is just how time consuming it is. In the past, when we had fewer social media or we had fewer platforms, media platforms in general, you know, it was there's not as much content for, for a person to have to sift and winnow through. Now, that being said, that means you have to put a lot of trust in the media organizations right. that are producing the, the information and um, their issues related to that. But now I think we're seeing a total different flip side where in the past, the onus was on the media organization to be trustworthy. Now the onus is on the audience to make sure that we are constantly verifying that information. And it's exhausting. It's really, really exhausting. I think it was I think it was one of your previous podcast episodes where you were talking about your media consumption and, and yeah. the fact that you don't necessarily do that much breaking news, but you try to, you know, follow along stories um, that are kind of longer or kind of after, right? Yeah. And I think those kind of practices are really, really useful. And I, I will probably actually take some of that advice into account because I consume way too much news and way too much social media. But in doing so, you get a lot of fatigue, right? You get fatigue from the influx of information and it makes it even harder to verify that information. Well, I think you want to, it's like read uh, uh, John Barry's The Great Influenza to understand mm -hmm. what's happening today as opposed to reading 
Alex Berenson's nonsense yeah. tweets about it, right? Like who you want to you want to study the past to help you understand the yes. future. I think I think you know. So sometimes people go like, you know, Ryan, you wrote this book about fake news. How could you believe the fake news about Donald Trump? And I, and I I think it's like, well, I'm actually not believing the fake news about Donald yeah. Trump. I'm reading his direct Context. quoted words, right? Yeah. Like it, 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 so there it's like the media can be very biased and very incorrect and be vulnerable in all these ways that it could have fixed by now that it doesn't for mm-hmm. largely financial as opposed to ideological reasons right. and, um, still be correct on certain things that are yeah. demonstrable and verifiable, um, that, yeah. that you can check for yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's what, like, when we talk about folks not necessarily realizing what doing the research means, uh, to me, a really important aspect of doing the research is going straight to the source, right? And and if you're going to have a, if you're going to consume some news article about a new policy or election fraud or whatever, going to the source and seeing what election officials said and what they reported is really, really essential, I think, in, in doing your research. No, and the source is not your friend's cousin's exactly. partner who is in the FBI or the, you know, the CDC or something. It's it's yeah. actual, actually direct interaction with people who know what they're talking about. Yes. And I, you know, one of the things that I do feel like I, for me, I've seen a lot when folks are talking about misinformation, especially misinformation that trades up the chain. I'm always super skeptical of anything that is kind of conspiratorial language, like anything that says, you know, this larger body is doing something terrible. And I think with a lot of information, it's very easy for something to turn from skepticism into conspiracy. And so when folks are talking about doing the research, I always try to steer them away from that skepticism conspiracy link and move them in more of a a different direction. Because usually once you start getting into that conspiratorial belief structure, that's where things really, you know, hits the fan. When I think asking, like, what is the agenda? Uh, Cicero said, uh, qui bono, like who benefits, mm-hmm, right? That's mm-hmm. the question that you ask. And so it's like when you're reading an article from an emergency room doctor in Alabama, yeah. who's not in the media, who's not a reporter, who's not a public person, it's very it's very obvious why, yes. like, that they would have little to no agenda here and that they are giving you, they're not even giving you political view, but they're just trying to give you the facts on the ground. We right. contrast this with, the, the 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 number one spreader of COVID misinformation, this guy in Florida, it's like, this is yeah. like a quack doctor with no patients who sells expensive yes. products on the yes. internet to his email list. Like, you know, yes. you should be able to, to decide vet sources uh, accordingly. But I think that's one of the things I realized is like, oh, what we're talking about, this is actually a, like, we used to think the digital divide was access to information, not access to information. Right. I think it's the set of skills that allow you to navigate an overwhelming amount of information and yeah. make sense of it. A lot of people don't have the skills or time to do that. A, a lady down the street uh, uh, who, who refused to get the vaccine, she, she mm-hmm. died. She ran a, a small food truck oh, here. And like her last words were like, you know, please everyone get vaccinated. But the, I think about like, she's sitting in a food truck all day, you know, yeah. making tacos. She doesn't have the time to dick around, uh, Mm-hmm. checking stories against each other or, or nor was she given the skills that you know you and I were trained at university to have yeah 
Absolutely. And, you know, media literacy, I feel, is becoming a really, really essential skill set that every citizen needs to have. And yet, you know, the the places and people who would be able to teach media literacy, libraries, schools are becoming increasingly inaccessible. They're losing a lot of funding. And it's really unfortunate because those are the skills I feel are really necessary to do that sort of sifting and winnowing of information or to ask the really important questions like, you know, what does a person get by sharing this information? And the example that you provided, I think, is really stellar because for me, anytime someone is hawking or selling something, that signals to me the intent is not about providing genuine information. Alex yeah. Jones being a great example of that. <laughs> no, of course. Although it's funny, people with me, go, oh, you're just saying this to like make money. It's like, I don't think you understand. By pissing you off, it's costing me money, money. right? Yeah. So you should also, yeah, when you go, does the person benefit from saying this or is by saying it, um, you know, is it actually like you can, it's a counter signal that you can trust it more because it's not in their self-interest. Although uh, to go to what we're talking about with misinformation, yeah. it also could be that the person has now been red pilled or, you know, their mind is so screwed totally. up that they've, they, you know, like now, now they're they're actively, really yeah, they're acting it. contrary to their interests and it's so hard to tell. It is. And I think that's especially hard when you think about social media content, especially the stuff that's super unverifiable. Mm -hmm. So some of the type of stuff that I see often go viral are things like, you know, here's a, a picture of someone getting sick because of the vaccine and nobody will share this. Right. And there's both the kind of really salient image and then this kind of text, this message and no one will share it, be a patriot and share it or something like that. And that sort of information is really hard to engage in that verification process. Like, how do you find the people who originally shared that picture? And it's been shared and manipulated so many times, it's probably quite tricky to, to find. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. Well, I, I, do, I do think media literacy is the next thing. I, there was something, some country that, that's right next to Russia. I forget which country it was. Finland, maybe. They were talking about like, like all kids for decades have been taught media literacy because they've so been uh, worried about the threat of misinformation from emanating from the Soviet Union and now Russia, that it's just part of the the lifestyle. I think, yes. I think that's what where we're going to have to get as a society. I, would, I mean, I would love that. I think Finland is this, this state that um, they do media literacy also from a very young age, which I yeah. think is really essential. Like, you know, if you're teaching media literacy to someone who's in their 40s or 50s, you have to really engage in an unlearning and learning process, right? Like right. undoing the habits that you developed for information gathering and then rebuilding new habits. Whereas if you're starting from primary school or elementary school, you're really teaching them as they are growing up and starting to consume information in the real world. And I think the earlier that we start, the better it is. No, that's right. I think you're know, talking about your mother-in-law. I think about my own mm -hmm. parents. I, I kind of, sometimes I just, it's too late for them, you know, yeah. and let's just focus on the next generation, sadly. Absolutely. Well, and, and we know that a lot of misinformation actors and conspiracy theorists do also target children, right? They, like my mother-in-law has a lot of children that she interacts with, you know, her grandkids and things like that. And, you know, when I think about those audiences or when I think about those kids, I, my hope, my greatest hope for them is that they gain the media literacy skills to question that. Um, but I don't know if they're necessarily getting that from people who have misinformation in their lives. No, I, I think that is the uh, that is the alarming thing. Welcome to uh, welcome to Austin. Uh, I'm out in Bastrop, so not far from you. 
Oh, cool. Do you, I, so this is actually my first time living in, in the South. Do you have any tips or suggestions? We just, I have, mm-hmm. like, you mean about how to live in the South or things to do in the South? More the former, both in terms of, you know, so I'm originally from New York City and then I did my PhD in Wisconsin, which is where I met my fiance. Yeah. And this is both of our first times really living in the South and dealing with the weather and, <laughs> you know, living in a Southern state and all of the kind of political implications of yes. that. Have you been here for a full year or is this, did you get here for the summer? So we came in, this is actually our full year as of this week. So we moved around this time in 2020. Um, so we've lived in Austin for a year, but it's been all under the pandemic, right? And so we haven't yeah. actually seen anything um, or we haven't really explored Texas or even Austin really. Well, and and Austin is the South, but it's sort of the functional South. So, uh, you know, like like I I'm I'm from California, so I moved to New Orleans. That was my first oh, Southern wow. city, mm-hmm. and when I was when I was writing my first book, actually, and and it was wonderful. But we sort of wanted a place that was also functional, like where people right. had jobs and uh, you know, like uh, worked at big companies, and there was an yeah. IKEA and stuff. You know, like we wanted <laughs> like actual life. So yeah. th- we sort of split the difference found austin so this is a nice place to get your get your feet wet for the south because it's it's got a lot of the wonderful parts of the south with fewer of the uh crazy parts of the yeah (laughs) no absolutely um and then of course i so i'm a an asian woman and yes one of the really interesting things i think about moving to austin and, and moving to the south was just how few uh, Asian Americans there are, it, or at least like, you know, I originally I came here thinking there weren't that many, but I feel like with the increasing number of folks who are transplanting to Austin, um, that number is potentially growing. It's, it's strange how siloed Texas is like, mm-hmm. uh, Houston's like, I think the most diverse city in America. And then yeah. I would venture to guess that Austin <laughs> is one of the Austin is not only not super diverse, but it's also very segregated, um, yes. not not just from original segregation, but just it seems very siloed and it's hard to know if there are more people like you, whatever you are, it's hard to know where those people are necessarily. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, I didn't realize how segregated the city was until, you know, we actually moved here. And I realized like a lot of that segregation is access to highways and yeah. um, that sort of thing. And And that was, you know, New York has certainly some segregated portions, but not to the degree that I, I felt it was here in Austin. Yeah, you're you're just all up on top of each other in different yeah. cities, and then I think, and in totally. Texas especially, you're like we're all inside our cars, so yes. you're not really even even though you are intermingling, you're intermingling on a five lane highway, so you're right. not actually getting the sense that you're uh, yeah. in a sea of diverse people. Well, and especially I realize now, and you know, being in the summer, the reason why everyone's in their car is because it's just too darn hot outside. <laughs> that is that is very true. And I've got to imagine uh with the the campus only sort of being partially op- mm-hmm. like this isn't this isn't sort of full-blown college town Austin that you've experienced which is more diverse and welcoming and cosmopolitan yeah. I feel like. Yes, and it is, you know, we're actually about to start our new semester this next next week and uh I'm I really want to see what that culture is like when everyone is together, but I'm also really anxious because, you know, living in Texas, there 
are no mask mandates or vaccine yes. mandates. And so I think the rollout in terms of, you know, how is the university going to address COVID while still trying to create this semblance of, of a college environment is going to be really tricky. Well, so I, I live out more in the country than you do. Um, mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. And, and I've, I've sort of people go, so what is it like? And it's, I, I sort of go, the nice part is you can do whatever you want. Uh, the, the not nice part is that everyone can do whatever they want. And you realize that we have, um, very divergent senses of what the right thing is and what, like what this, I mean, I think what Texas is struggling with, and you were just alluding to is, Mm -hmm. is that we seem to have a very poor understanding of what the word freedom is, or we have a perverse understanding of what the word freedom means. Yes. That's a really good way to frame it. I think, the the concept of freedom it hasn't just been perverse but it has been exploited and, and manipulated right so that it means different things to different people and it's a little unfortunate because i feel like you know the, one of the things that has become separated is this concept of freedom and caring for one another right yes. and, and this idea that they <laughs> they can be kind of diametrically opposed it's very you know it's quite tragic particularly in texas especially given the rising rates with the delta with the delta variant well, and, and it's profoundly disingenuous, right? So the governor will say stuff like, you know, the way through this virus is through personal responsibility. And you're like, uh, totally agree. That is obviously the way through it. And so you're like, if that's where the sentence stopped, you know, mm-hmm. or the statement stopped, if it was like, hey, everyone is responsible for doing their part to stop this virus, you'd be like, great. But then the set, like it, it Texas seems to have, again, perverted this idea of freedom where it's like it's about personal responsibility, not mandates. And then out of the other side of their mouth or the second half of the sentence is, by the way, you don't actually have any responsibility and you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do, which is, of course, not what the word not what personal responsibility means. So it's like, if you're saying, hey, vaccines are a personal choice, masks are a personal choice, but I expect each and every one of you to make the personally responsible choice, at least that's a coherent policy that's logically consistent as opposed to, you know, this is about freedom and responsibility. And by the way, you're free to do whatever you want and you have no responsibility. Yes, exactly. And I think that's that's the the distinction, right, between freedom and responsibility and what does responsibility actually mean? Because being responsible means you should be wearing masks and you should be getting vaccinated. But especially given the sheer amount of misinformation out there about the vaccine, the, the message coming from the governor and from a lot of politicians here in Texas has been really troubling. Well, I'm so glad we got to talk. Uh, please keep up the uh, very important work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. My newest book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave, is now available for pre-order. We've got a bunch of amazing bonuses. You can get signed copies, of course. Uh, I'm so proud of this book. General Jim Mattis has called it a superb handbook for crafting a purposeful life. Matthew McConaughey, also a father, called it an urgent call to arms to each and all of us. I do hope you check it out. It's my first in the Four Virtues series, Courage, Temperance, Justice, Wisdom. Courage is calling. Fortune favors the brave. If you want to pre-order it, I'd really appreciate your support. Go to dailystoic.com slash pre-order. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black 